Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in. Use all available doors. Come in and know that you are welcome. Yes, Shed the wraps, light though they may be, for this cool but doubtless summery evening here in the Chicago dimension of the District of Wonders. Find a place to snuggle. Yes, my name is Lawrence Santoro. The buzzer label did not mislead you. This is The Nook. This is Tales to Terrify. So settle upon a beverage or two, scoop some snack, and relax. Tonight... Tonight will be a pleasantly long evening. I love pleasantly lengthy evenings spent in the company of friends and fellow travelers in the realms of the dark and deeply disturbing, that too. And tonight we shall contemplate the afterlife from differing perspectives. A word of warning, both of tonight's tales feature firing squads. Cotton for the ears will neither be provided nor will it be required. The squads are forming and will be ready in a moment, but first, let me once more suggest you make a voyage to our website, if you're not already there, and make a contribution. A few dollars, a few pounds or euros, all of it will help Tony C. Smith, our producer in the far north of England, where they have that 700-foot-high wall of ice and snow, Keep the show and all the shows that enlighten the District of Wonders, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, the Starship Sofa, and us, to keep us all in fresh electrons and those other appurtenances that are the stuff and substance of podcasting. Make a one-time contribution or make a commitment and be a monthly subscriber. There. That wasn't too painful now, was it? No. Of course not. Now, for some storytelling. 
Our first story tonight is from Jessica M. Broughton. Jessica is a writer of fiction and nonfiction with a personal, as she says, penchant for swing dancing, art deco, and vintage typewriters. She writes speculative fiction and horror from her home in Pasadena, California. But more about the author, Anon. Here now is Jessica M. Broughton's Bespoke. As the blindfold was pulled taut across her shockingly green eyes, shielding them from the sunset she knew was her last, Ophelia squared her shoulders and held her head high. She closed her eyes behind the black silk cloth, but she could still see the swirls of color as the sun bowed itself to the horizon. From the dark indigo and royal plum confections that danced about the white wisps of clouds, she constructed a dress in her head, a dress made of the sun the clouds, the moon and stars, the color of the sunset beyond the blindfold. It would be the last design she would ever create and would never be put to paper. She had always wanted a June wedding, but in this particular June of 1937, the only occasion for her would be her death. Her lover, Jacob, stood behind the soldier who would end her life. His head hung low as he stared at the ground. Two armed guards stood slightly behind him and forced him to stay in position and watch. One of the guards, a blonde lad, who could have been no more than sixteen, smashed the end of the pistol into Jacob's shoulder, giving him the not-so-subtle hint that he was required to watch. Instead, Jacob lifted his head and looked around Ophelia. He observed the details but refused to look at her. The soldiers' uniforms, he noticed, were a shade darker than the dust they stirred up as they marched into the field. What color was it, really? What shade of brown would describe their oh-so-boring state-issued attire? Ophelia, in contrast, was blight in the wheat field in her black velvet gown. The hammer of the rifle clicked as it was locked back into place, and the sharp crack echoed into the vast silence. Even the birds had ceased their song in deference. Ophelia began to tremble and shake, told herself to be brave, that her final moments would be had with grace and dignity. She found her voice, and although it wavered, it sounded out with the clarity and resonance of a church bell. Death, she said, and her voice cracked as the tears she had held in flowed down her cheeks, her body shaking with fear. Death is not the worst thing that can happen. The last sound she heard was the crack of the rifle. The last thing she felt was the faint breeze of the speeding bullet as it careened its way through her gray matter and exited out the back of her skull. Her dark auburn hair was with fresh color as the blood spattered down her back. She crumpled to the ground, fell to the sand-colored earth, and the wheat chaff that danced around her finally came to rest in the infinity of her gown. Jacob noticed as she fell that her makeup was still immaculately in place. Her china red lipstick was applied with perfection, and Jacob was impressed by her attention to detail in preparation for her final moments. She had dressed for her death with the same attention to detail that she would have dressed for a state dinner, 
Ophelia wouldn't have done it any other way. Now she was dead, and he was released. He had never wanted to be caged in the way that she had managed to cage him, and he was finally free. Jacob fell to his knees and wept for his foolishness, for Ophelia, and for himself. The rifleman spat on Ophelia's corpse and kicked a spray of dirt over her. This is how the High Chancellor deals with traitors, he muttered, wiping the spittle from his mouth with the back of his hand. The soldiers pulled Jacob up, turning him around, and forced him to march. His two guardsmen clapped the executioner on the back, and congratulatory smokes were handed out as they walked back to his prison that was disguised as a whitewashed bungalow. The young blonde lad handed Jacob a hand-rolled cigarette from a silver case and lit it for him. Jacob took a long drag and walked, mused that its taste would blend well with a glass of neat bourbon on par with that he had had with Ophelia just two short nights ago. When he returned to the bungalow, he would drink a toast to her before getting back to work. That was his price, his penance, his gift. She had chosen death, and he, on the other hand, chose life. Not that he would continue their work, of course. Their work had ended. But he had worked before Ophelia, and he would continue to work after Ophelia. Jacob was a tailor, and was considered the finest tailor in Europe, but Ophelia, Ophelia had the eye. He recognized her talent the minute she walked into his shop with sketches of the skirt suit that she wanted made. He saw the genius in each pencil stroke, and before long he was equally adept at both dressing and undressing her slender frame. She could take one look at a customer and design a garment the likes of which had never been seen. Each piece they created was one of a kind, completely unique and never duplicated, and she searched the continent for the materials of only the finest quality. It was after she had gone on one of these excursions to visit a pearl merchant on the Azure coast that Jacob first felt something different. He should have been hard at work taking in a suit for a wealthy client, but he was unable to focus. She had already moved into the three-room flat above his storefront, and it was the first absence they had endured. He let three days of stubble build up on his face and spent most of his time studying the fireplace, prodding the smoldering logs with a metal poker from the comfort of his armchair. He even managed to forget that the world was changing lost completely in his thoughts of the woman who was sharing his hearth and home. The High Chancellor was marching across Europe, spreading communist philosophy and propaganda like a plague. Every country he marched on was taken in the name of the common man. Art and beauty were denigrated to the level of mediocrity as they were claimed for the people. Fortunately, Spain, the Americas, and Eastern Europe had managed to hold off the High Chancellor's army, and for Jacob and Ophelia, that meant business was still thriving. The day of Ophelia's return, he arrived at the train station four hours early. He tried to read the paper, but ended up nervously tearing it into shreds before pacing the platform. When the old steamer chugged back into the station, he ran along the length of the train until he saw her leaning out of a window, waving and smiling into the rain, as the billowing steam from the train surrounded her. This vision of her took his breath away, 
and Jacob thought she looked like an angel. He would tell her this later that night when they made love, her hands running the length of his back while his head rested like a child's on her soft and supple belly, his fingers dancing between her thighs. She giggled, ran her fingers up his spine until he shivered and said, But it was only me. He pulled himself onto his forearms so that she was underneath him, cupped her chin in between his rough hands, and he made her look at him. Not only you, Ophelia. You are an angel. My angel. He kissed her, slowly and languidly at first, until their passions carried them through the night. By morning, he had convinced himself that he loved her, and he told her as much. He wasn't sure who was more surprised, himself or Ophelia, when later that day he placed a ring of garnet and diamonds on her left hand and asked her to be his wife. He shook his head. It was useless to reminisce. He was glad that the windows faced away from the field where Ophelia's body still lay, uncovered, exposed to the elements. Oh God, she would get so cold out there tonight. So, so cold. All because of him. If she would have just cooperated, if she would have just put her damned ideals on the back burner to satisfy this one request, if she hadn't been so blatantly stubborn, if, if, if. He dug his heels in as he walked, cracking the ground and wishing that the earth would swallow them both. That would be preferable, but he was left to clean up the mess and satisfy the High Chancellor's request on his own. The soldiers marched him to the door of his bungalow, and the rifleman unlocked the solid oak door. The blonde boy handed him a purple sack containing the remaining tobacco, cigarette wrappers, and a box of matches, and said, You need these more than I do, before locking him inside. Every window was barred, but the guards stationed there were few. Out here in the country, there was nowhere to run. The bungalow was comfortable enough, but Jacob longed for the comfort of his workspace in Paris. He closed his eyes and willed the image out of his head. That place no longer existed. His ideal no longer existed. Ophelia. He lit another cigarette, shook the match out, and flicked it into the sink, and filled up a tumbler with bourbon. He carried the bottle and the glass to the large wooden farm table that was his workspace, and sat down at one of the benches. Stubs of charcoal and drawing paper were scattered everywhere, and most of the pages were covered with furious scribbles and black axes. Ophelia's evening bag and her slingback stilettos sat at the end of the table, awaiting a return that would never come. Jacob finished the bourbon in the tumbler and took his next drinks in rapid succession, straight from the bottle. He folded his arms and hid his face, waiting for the alcohol to take him to sweet oblivion. His last thought before drifting off to sleep was that only a few short days ago, he would never have let his tuxedo come into contact with charcoal. Jacob opened his eyes and started. The country prison had fallen away, and he was back in Paris, back to the night they had been conscripted. He stared at Ophelia, resplendent in her black velvet gown. The yellow light in Le Grand Vefort reflected off the marble ceiling and gave the entire restaurant a warm glow. Two nights ago, he told her to get dressed, that he was taking her out to dinner to celebrate the completion of their latest commission, a dress for Sarita Espinosa, the famed Andalusian beauty, who was making her debut as the harpist at the Royal Symphony in London.
It was a stunning gown to behold, made of twenty-five yards of golden satin and embroidered with solid gold thread, crystals, and pearls. When Jacob asked her at dinner where she had procured the luxurious fabric, Ophelia winked at him and said, I have my sources. He kissed her then, across the table, told her that he was convinced she had bewitched every merchant in the whole of Europe. And indeed she must have, for the collection of perfect opalescent pearls that she had procured on her trip to the coast for a mere 100 francs was scandalous. Jacob had ordered a bottle of the restaurant's finest champagne, and the waiter brought it to their table with great speed, along with an order of escargot and garlic butter, with just a hint of cognac. They never got to enjoy the main course, and he never got to suggest that when they traveled to Spain to deliver the gown, they should marry. Instead of drinking her champagne, as she had that night, she put her glass down on the table, and the restaurant grew hazy and began to blur. The other patrons froze in mid-bite through their meals, and waiters carrying silver trays were paused in their rush to the kitchen. Hello, Jacob, said Ophelia, reaching for her silk bag. There isn't much time. You have only a week to complete the robe for the High Chancellor, and you still don't have a design, she said as she reached into her bag and pulled out a single page and handed it to him. She closed her bag stood up and raised her glass in salute to Jacob. To your, our, final triumph. She drained her glass and walked away from the table, leaving Jacob holding his glass and his mouth open like a cod. Ophelia, wait, he cried. Why? Why are you helping me? Ophelia turned, her once fiery eyes covered with a milky film and a dark hole in the middle of her forehead. Rivulets of blood began to drip down her face, slid around her nose, and navigated her pallid cheeks until they came to rest on the bodice of her gown. The blood came faster and ran into her eyes, but Ophelia didn't raise a hand to brush it away. She just stared at him, tall and proud and unafraid. And oh God, why wouldn't she stop staring at him like that? Jacob felt himself grow cold, an icy cold that stopped his breath and he dropped the champagne flute. It hit the polished wood floor and fragmented into musical diamonds that skittered in every direction. Jacob started and fell backwards off the wooden bench. He hit the concrete floor hard, reacting in time to prevent his head from smacking into the slab. The bottle of bourbon had spilled across the table, and he leapt up to grab the sheaves of paper before they could be sullied. He placed his scratched-out scribblings on the counter next to the sink, grabbed a towel, and cursed his luck for losing his liquor. He was making his way back to the table when a splash of color stopped him in his tracks. He pushed the top pages aside and stared and didn't notice as the rest of the papers slid to the floor like falling leaves. He ran to the table, threw a towel over the spilled bourbon, and lit several candles to help with the dim electricity. How the fuck, he said, and sat back down on the bench, rubbing his mouth with his damp fingers, leaving the acrid taste of charcoal in their wake. It was the drawing Ophelia had handed to him in Le Grand before, but impossible, he shouted, heaving the empty glass across the room and shattering it on the door. It was good. It was her best work to date. Ophelia, 
or his subconscious, more like, had created a fitted, hooded robe that would leave an observer in no doubt who wore it. The material would be soft leather, perhaps lambskin, and embroidered with all the stars, moons, and sabers representative of the office of High Chancellor. The details by themselves were incredible, but the overall effect that these symbols made up were nothing short of genius. Jacob knew that none of his designs compared to the sketch that was before him. On the back of the robe, the designs were intertwined to form an enormous stitched phoenix rising from a pyre, with its head stitched on the back of the hood and with the outstretched wings extending down the arms, wrapping around to combine with the patterns emblazoned on the front. Each symbol was interwoven into the phoenix so that the effect was that of stitched feathers. A crowd of workers stood next to the pyre, representing the masses that the High Chancellor controlled under the guise of liberation. And, he thought, it was practical. It was waterproof, cool enough for a summer in France, yet built to withstand even the harshest Russian winter. As soon as he had grasped the concept of the design, Jacob wasted no time sketching a pattern based on the High Chancellor's measurements. He worked at a fevered pace, talking to himself the way he used to talk to Ophelia, making comments out loud about the measurements, the sizes, how the garment would hang, exactly where stitching would need to be applied to bring the garment in underneath the arms to create an artificial waist higher up. Don't you think it should go here, Ophelia? When at last he looked up, dawn was breaking and his white dress shirt was streaked with black smudges. He rolled the last of his tobacco into a cigarette, lit it, and inhaled deeply. He took a brief moment's pause before he moved over to the window to watch the sun come up. It was the first time in a year that he had seen it rise without her at his side to savor it with him. He swallowed the heartbreak that was lumping in the back of his throat and rode the wave of excitement. Jacob felt elated and high, like he had on so many nights after he and Ophelia had stayed awake all night making love. A good night's work produced the same effect, that same satisfaction. He turned to look at his workspace, covered with drawings sticks of charcoal, the nubs of candles, and the empty bottle of bourbon. Then his eyes fell to Ophelia's shoes and purse. They were the only bit of order that remained on the table, and no, that would not do. Still puffing on the last remaining bits of his cigarette, he hastily scrawled a list of needed materials and knocked twice on the door, handed it over to the dark-haired soldier stationed outside, and demanded that he make haste. He made do with a meager breakfast of a croissant and a mug of hot coffee, inwardly annoyed that he wasn't eating one of the good English breakfasts that he had grown accustomed to. In between bites, he took all of his drawings and threw them into the fire. Her sketch, her bag, and her delicate shoes were the table's only decoration. He sprinted upstairs, thought only of the work ahead of him, and drew a bath, whistling as he jumped into the tub. The hot water washed away all the dirt and grime of the previous evening, and he felt his tense shoulders relax in the steam. He thought how strange the human brain was, what flights of fancy it conjured up while one was simply trying to process the events of the day. He jumped out of the tub and dried himself, pushing away all thoughts of Ophelia. 
There would be plenty of time to mourn her after. And what was after? Jacob didn't know what life was going to hold for him. Life after Ophelia. But he consoled himself while he dressed with the thought that at least he was here to live it. Whereas she, she had refused. She had chosen death rather than life. A life with him. After promising to stand by him. And she couldn't do that because of her principles. What moral high road was to be achieved in death? It was a fool's hope, and, like Juliet before her, no one would recall her life without the stain of how it ended. Jacob covered his doubly face with a frothy layer of shaving soap and flicked the straight razor open, turned his head, and held his skin taut as he brought the straight razor to his jawline and pressed the blade down. His eyes swam, and he was no longer in the bathroom. He was again in the wheat field, but this time the skies were a fiery orange, as if explosions were rocketing across the sky. All he could see was Ophelia. Ophelia stood in front of him, within reach, dark circles under her eyes, and the hole in her forehead black. She stared at Jacob, an expression of unimaginable pain on her face, and she lowered her head and turned, walking away. He called out to her, but no matter how much he shouted and yelled, there was no sound. He reached out to touch her, and as his fingertips brushed her arm, he recoiled as jolts of electricity surged through his hand. His touch did not stop her from walking away, and he was able to see what that tiny bullet had done to his once lovely Ophelia. Her hair, once soft and lustrous, was dull and matted to the back of her skull or it would have been matted to the back of her skull if she had much of a skull left. The shot from the rifle fired at such close range had taken away most of the back of her head and left an empty shell in its wake. He had always wanted to probe the inner reaches of her mind, and now he was seeing it, the fleshy pink of her brain matter protruding through her hair, a forbidden fruit just waiting to be plucked. He called out to her, yelling for her to stop, and then he was screaming, watching as a chunk of her brain slid down her dress before hitting the ground with a sickening splat. Jacob screamed at himself in the bathroom mirror, the razor poised precariously at his jugular. He dropped it into the sink, turned, and immediately vomited into the empty tub. He was still vomiting when the guards rushed inside the bungalow the clack-clack of their military-issue boots, creating syncopated beats as they ascended the stairs. They pounded on the door and tried the handle, locked, but Jacob couldn't remember doing so, and he steadied himself on the edge of the tub as the contents of last night's booze and this morning's breakfast reappeared. Open the door, Jacob, or I shall break it down, shouted the oldest soldier still a boy of about 19 with a surly, pitbullish disposition and a cropped shock of black hair. Jacob just sat on the edge of the tub, tried to steady himself, but he struggled to focus with the door banging on its hinges. He took his time, washed his face in the cool water of the sink, and brushed his teeth, although it didn't do much to help his pale and clammy complexion. When he felt presentable, he opened the door. What are you doing, trying to wake the dead? He demanded. 
catching the guards before they could run into the door again. The pit bull straightened his posture. We heard screams, and we were ordered. Jacob flung his damp towel at the boy and slammed the bathroom door behind him to hide his illness. What you heard is me being ill from having to eat this shit you call food. I am here on very important business for the High Chancellor, and you don't even have the decency to feed me a proper meal. He shoved the guards in the direction of the stairs. Go. I need to get a few hours of peace and quiet, and unless you've returned with some real food, decent booze, and my supplies, do not disturb me. That is an order. The two boys turned and fled, leaving Jacob looking like a red-faced grizzly bear at the top of the stairs. He turned and stormed back into the bathroom, slammed the door hard enough to knock a picture off the wall, and ran water in the tub until it was clean. He opened the small window, and the cool breeze sharpened his senses, ridding the stench of vomit from the room. The sun on his hallowed eyes was a small comfort, but a comfort nonetheless. He was just working too hard. That was it. That was all this had to be. It was the stress of seeing his beautiful Ophelia killed, murdered, led to her death by him because he couldn't stand by her and die with her. He was physically stronger than she. He could have easily outmuscled the three guards and then they could have fled. But to where? In these treacherous times, one never knew who was friend or foe. But they could have tried. He could have tried. He could have tried to save her. He could have used his contacts to escape to somewhere safe. But none of that mattered now. He shut off the water in the tub and walked quickly down the hall to the bedroom and crawled into bed, wrapped the blankets around himself, and stuffed his thoughts down to the deep recesses of his inner being. He breathed deeply, smelling Ophelia's unique scent still on the sheets in the very bed where she had lain and resigned herself to her fate, tearfully telling him that even if death was the cost, that she could not, would not, do anything that would aid the High Chancellor's regime. She had been given the honor and the charge of creating his garments and refused. That might have been forgiven had she not also refused the High Chancellor's advances. Jacob had even given his consent. Whatever would keep them and their commission safe. Ophelia blackened the Chancellor's eye as her answer and sealed her fate. Jacob had argued with her telling her that her act of disobedience wouldn't solve anything, and she turned away from him that night, for the first and last time. She was up until dawn, and her tears had dried, and she left nothing but her warm natural smell and wet spots on her pillow. Her smell wormed its way into his nostrils, and it lulled him to sleep. Jacob's body woke up before his mind did, and his limbs were stiff and sore. He was unbelievably cold. He groped for the blankets, resolved to wrap them around himself and get a few more hours of sleep. It was dark, and he cursed himself for sleeping the day away, but he was so, so tired. Instead, his hands found hard, splintery wood. His eyes flew open. His mind raced and assumed the worst. Had the High Chancellor dealt him the fate that it was rumored was befalling so many others? His breath quickened, and he discovered that his limbs weren't just stiff, 
they were tied down. His bonds were made of the softest leather imaginable, just how he thought the lambskin he ordered for the robe would feel. Jacob struggled against his bonds, and his fingers probed for the knots that dug into his extremities, but they were just out of reach. He stared at the kitchen ceiling and watched as shadows danced in what must have been candlelight, searching for the person who had done this. He opened his mouth to scream, but a cold, wet finger slid down his trembling lips. He followed it with his eyes until he could no longer look away from that face that he knew so well. Ophelia's hair was disheveled. The flesh on her face was mottled with purple and gray blotches so dark that she looked as if she had been beaten. Jacob noticed that her lipstick was somehow still perfectly in place, not a feather of color outside of the lines on her decomposing face. The beading on her dress was torn, and the velvet was crusted with chaff and dew. But her eyes, her eyes, they were green and lit from a flame that burned from something unworldly. At that moment, Jacob could see into the depths of her soul. He knew not how. He could see and feel the pain, the anguish, the torment, and remarkably, the love. The love that resonated from her was the most painful thing of all, that through everything that he had done to her, her love for him remained. Jacob, she cooed, her voice sounding like crunching gravel. Your arrogance has led you astray. She clucked her tongue at him, and he could see in the candlelight that it was black and swollen. Ophelia walked out of his field of vision, and he strained to follow her movements. She walked back to his head, and he heard the clatter of wood and concrete as her uncoordinated limbs knocked the table bench to the ground. Did you really think they'd let you live, my dear Jacob? Did you think that the High Chancellor would value you any more once he got what he asked for? Coward, you would always sell whatever you valued to the highest bidder. You have always run from what was real. You always preferred the glitter of a fantasy. You lived only in your creations, whereas I, I sought to make reality more beautiful by mine. You wore yours like a mask, shielded yourself from anything real and true. Ophelia sighed, her shoulders sagged and drooped. He tried to speak, but one of her glances silenced him. I still love you, Jacob, but I have principles. I don't know why I'm here or what forces have brought me back. There is one thing I know for certain. The rage of a thousand suns burns in my veins, and I'm here to make an alteration to the fabric of this world. Tears ran down his cheeks, and she kissed one away, and her fetid breath brought on a wave of nausea. He gagged, shook from head to toe, and strained against the bonds that held him to no avail. She moved her mouth to his ear and whispered, I'm here for your final fitting. He felt something pop in the center of his forehead, as if his brain was splitting apart and then there was only blackness. When he opened his eyes, the sun was up and streaming into the kitchen. He was numb from head to toe, but he could feel a cool breeze tickling his naked body. It took every ounce of strength he had to rock his head to the side. Jacob's view was disproportionately high up, 
and as his body began to sway to and fro, he came to the dawning horror that he was hanging, suspended from the wooden chandelier. It creaked and groaned underneath his weight, but it held. His head lolled to the left, and he came face to face with the black feathers sticking out of his skin. He squinted his eyes and focused on the stem of the feather and the fine silver thread that was whip-stitched into place. Ophelia had never been able to master any other technique with the needle and thread, but this one she did so well. The thread held the feathers into his skin with a frightening precision. Even with his vision blurred, he could see nothing but a sea of blackish purple up and down his extended arm. He mumbled and burbled, trying in vain to make any sort of intelligible sound, and he drooled as his tongue refused to cooperate. Lost in concentration, Jacob's head rolled forward, and he was able to see the full extent of what had been done to him. His rib cage was completely exposed, and he could see the muscles in his chest had been laid bare. His visible heart pumped blood to his still-living body, rising and falling with each beat. With each rhythmic, lub-dub, a little bit of feeling returned, and the pain rose to an agonizing level. Jacob's arms began to throb and his skin to burn. His head lolled to the right, and his eyes found the gold pair of tailor's shears that Ophelia had given him one beautiful day so long ago. Their sheen was mottled with blood, and a strip of flesh was intertwined between the blades. His gaze traveled upwards from the floor, up his stocky thighs, up to the area above his pelvis where the incision started. The skin from his navel to his sternum had been peeled back and had been sewn into lapels. The complicated designs that were supposed to decorate the leather were stitched into his skin with the crossed sabers of the chancellery embroidered in perfect symmetry on either side. Jacob's first thought was that Ophelia had never learned to embroider. She couldn't have done this to him. It was beautiful work, the best she, they, had ever done. He was finally able to make a sound, a low, guttural cry in the back of his throat as he tried to call the guards for help. Pain radiated throughout every inch of his body, and he saw Ophelia's face looking in on him from the front window. Black tears streaked her face as she scratched her nails across the glass and mouthed the words, I love you. Jacob closed his eyes and prayed that he would join her soon. With his eyes still closed, he felt Ophelia creep up behind him, smelled her perfume mixed with the sweet scent of decay. How had she made it inside so fast? Her clammy hands ran up his arms and quite literally ruffled his feathers as she laughed low and long. She ran her hands down the front of his chest, probing the organs she found there. His body involuntarily recoiled in horror and began to spasm, causing the chandelier to protest loudly. She traced the lapels that had been stitched into his skin. How do you like my workmanship, my love? She moved her fingers over to his heart, and her fingertips sunk into the organ, causing Jacob to twitch uncontrollably. It felt like lightning had erupted from every nerve in his body as Ophelia plunged her hand further into his chest, probing until she found what she was looking for. 
He would have never known it was there until she touched it. When she clenched her hand around this unnameable thing, he felt his own internal spark, his joy, his passion, and his love. His overwhelming love for the woman at his side flood his body and his mind. Ophelia kissed his forehead and murmured, Do you feel that, darling? That is what I saw in you. This promise of greatness. That's what I loved, and what I still love, in you. This part of you belongs to me. She slowly withdrew her hand, and Jacob could feel her cold touch turn his insides to ice. Her hand shook and pulsed, yet her fingers held fast in an iron grip. As her fingers left him, Jacob felt everything, every dream he had ever had, every joy, every single solitary moment when he had been really and truly happy, leave him. She leaned his head into the crook of her neck and kissed him softly. Do you see now, Jacob? Do you see that you are nothing but flesh and bones? I have taken that which is most precious to you. And you didn't even know what you had. You never knew what you had. But I promise you this. You will miss it for the rest of your life. To live was your choice, and live you shall. She turned to face him as he whimpered and shivered in the early morning air. Goodbye, my love, Ophelia whispered as she pressed her palm into her chest pushing her palm to her chest. Her decaying flesh was washed clean in an unseen wind, and Jacob saw for the first and last time the beauty in her soul. He reached out to touch her, but she continued to glow until her light blinded him so that all he could have seen, had he dared open his eyes, was a ball of burning brightness. Moments later, the soldiers broke down the door, clambered over the kitchen table, and yanked the rope off Jacob's neck. Upon examination, the High Chancellor's personal physician would say that the white light and images of Ophelia was a hallucination as the result of a lack of oxygen. Jacob denied the suicide charge, and the physician, in a moment of pity, managed to convince the High Chancellor that it was the lack of sleep and too much drink that had caused him to go temporarily mad never one to let his personal issues stand in the way of his professional obligations. He finished the coat for the High Chancellor after a day of convalescence, just to prove that he could. Jacob was heralded by the High Chancellor as a man who had turned away from the decadence of the Western bourgeois to serve his fellow man. Gone were the classy three-piece pinstripe suits, the luxurious ball gowns that rustled along the dance floor, and everything that sparkled and shone was gone as well. In its place were the drab, the mundane, the uniforms that showed camaraderie and state solidarity. That was his lot now. It was just as well, for Jacob felt that he had nothing left with which to create. He had nothing left. He had nothing. He was nothing. In the middle of the night, when he woke up screaming, he swore he could hear Ophelia's final words. Death is not the worst thing that can happen.
Thank you for Bespoke, Jessica. Jessica M. Broughton is a Pennsylvanian, now living, as I mentioned, in Southern California. Her professional life runs a range of experience from owning a technology company to fashion to being the story coordinator on the absolutely stunningly lovely animated film Nine. Stunningly lovely, that is, if you like grimly post-apocalyptic steampunky kinds of things. And who doesn't? Since 2006, she's worked as a freelance writer, most recently as a contributor for Tekka, T-E-C-C-A, dot com. Her first piece of published fiction can be found in episode number 214 on the Drabblecast, and you know where that is. You can find her other writings at her website, girlwriter.com, and that is the currently standard spelling of girl, G-R-R-L, writer, one word, dot com. It will be on the Tales to Terrify homepage, just next to the Support the Show spot, by the way. When not writing, Jessica says she's probably swing dancing or hiking in one of the many mountains of San Diego. Thanks again, Jessica. Bespoke was read for us tonight by Antoinette Bergen. Antoinette, whom I have never met, avows that she is, and let me get this right, um, uh, twisted, dark, sarcastic, pessimistic, weird and demented. Well, maybe. She sounds rather adorable. So perhaps adorable is what happens when all of those elements combine in one person, like Long Island iced tea. Antoinette is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate, love that title, and she has been known to mail packages of lime jello to people she deems worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen, B-E-R-G-I-N, and she probably won't harm you if you follow her. I await my jello. Next up this evening is the late Mr. Mike Allen, back this week with a solo adventure touring the abattoir, and yes, he is Hurlbertless this week, Shailen Wise, and, well, he'll tell you about it. Mike? Greetings, Tales to Terrify listeners, and welcome to another installment of Tour of the Abattoir. I'm Mike Allen, and today I'm going to talk about something that fills me with conflicting emotions and it's not a political issue or a religious issue or even anything particularly personal it's the amazing and perhaps inexplicable popularity of Scott Sigler but before I elaborate I owe all of you an apology. You may have noticed, I hope you did, this column skipped a month. There's a number of reasons for this. I was traveling during the first half of May on the weekends, and during the second half, 
I was laboring at a furious pace to mail copies of Clockwork Phoenix 4 to my Kickstarter backers. And on top of that, there's this pesky day job thing that I seem to have all sort of duties toward that I can't get out of that ate up much more of my spare time than usual spare time that I could have been using recording for you. Finally, I had hoped to record this particular column with my buddy Shallon Hurlbert so he could provide a counter to what I have to say. But life just got in the way. He wasn't able to join me, and alas, I must go it alone. And that's too bad, as Shallon is the one who introduced me to Sigler's novels. Shallon's what Sigler calls a junkie, one of his original fans. I want to make a couple things clear. One is that I have a lot of respect for what Scott Sigler has accomplished in his relatively short career. He was one of the first to experiment with podcasting novels, a pioneer in the podcast world, so to speak. And he built a huge audience through his hard work and also through being more than a little entertaining. It feels a bit like heresy to say in a horror fiction podcast that I don't like Sigler's writing, but there you go. I've said it. I've been curious to read Infected, a story of invasive alien parasites not far removed in its premise from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, ever since I heard about Sigler as a self-made success about five years ago or so. Infected alternates between two main plot threads, a military and scientific effort to determine the nature of the infection and stop it, and the ordeal of an ex-football player with serious daddy issues named Perry Dawson, who is severely infected by the parasites and engaged. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Ages in a book-length battle to remove them from his body. What I've learned from that novel and the two others I've read since is that there are several things you can count on in a Scott Sigler novel pretty much every time out. Meticulous, plausible-sounding scientific explanations for everything, detailed down to the cellular level, obsessive compulsive descriptions of military hardware and the capabilities of said machines, short chapters with sardonic titles, improbable but curiously addictive plots, characters that are flat as pancakes, most of whom never rise above walking cliches, prose that ranges from sufficient in a workmanlike way to painfully clumsy, and an amazing affinity for obvious and often awkward metaphors. My personal favorite of these occurs in the third novel I read, Ancestor, in which Sigler compares frightened cows bursting out of a barn to a, quote, orgasm of terror, unquote. I confess, I keep wondering if I'm missing something by not hearing the stories read in Sigler's voice. For example, I'd come to a phrase like the orgasm of terror that I just shared and wonder is this supposed to be funny? I just can't tell. It seemed like it was meant to be taken totally at face value, as a descriptor that's meant to be frightening. I'm really baffled as to whether or not I'm missing Scott Ziegler's sense of humor, or whether he's actually that oblivious to how ridiculous some of these things are, or whether, in fact, it's a combination of both. There's another portion of Ancestor, where a character who is a wannabe novelist produces an excerpt that's shared with the reader that's clearly supposed to be a spoof of a Twilight-style vampire romance. And lo and behold, the send-up is actually really funny. But then soon after, Ziegler writes an actual romantic scene between two of his main characters that's just about as awful. (laughs) Except it reads as if Sigler thinks it's actually sensible and heart-tugging. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Infected is at its most effective when it follows Dawson's 
gruesome, self-mutilating struggle to cut the aliens out of his body. It's effective in a low-budget, cheapy sort of way, as one of the alien triangles, as they're called, is growing in an extremely private painful place, and the author intrudes frequently to remind the reader about a pair of large chicken scissors that Perry Dawson owns, telegraphing what he's going to do to rid himself of said creature for a couple hundred pages. So the suspense that gets built isn't even over whether or not he's going to cut off his own junk, but when he will do it. In the other plot line, the military also fights off an alien invasion, but it's the sausage chopping that you end up remembering most from Infected. Although, I must confess, the biology of the triangle creatures is pretty fascinating. Contagious, the sequel to Infected, follows the same pattern, alternating military and scientific efforts to combat the aliens with Dawson's struggle with his own inner demons. He really does have inner demons in this book because his brain has been altered such that he's telepathically plugged into the alien's mental network and hears them as voices in his head. The fact that he can hear the aliens makes him essential to the military efforts to stop him. But because he's mentally unbalanced, he's also a wild card who's in his own way dangerous. And this rare inner conflict in a Ziegler story continues to make him the most most interesting character as this novel proceeds. Contagious is better written than Infected, but it also shows some serious weaknesses, a very contradictory experience. All of the segments told from the points of view of the various alien villains and the humans they control often come off as varying degrees of unintentionally funny, and yet the book builds to a slam-bang action conclusion that I have to admit I would love to see on the big screen where it ever adopted. It really gets the pulse going. A surprisingly strong ending for a book that has been so cheesy for most of its length. I cannot quite say the same thing about the third and most recent book that I read, Ancestor. Ancestor I believe, was written before Infected, like all of his novels originally podcast to his audience, and then, in this particular instance, extensively rewritten to be released as a mass-market commercial hardcover. Though Sigler's stories are arguably horror, he's marketed as a kind of offbeat, blue-collar version of Michael Crichton. I think that might be the best way to describe the impression that I have of how his stories are presented. And Ancestor certainly owes a lot to Michael Crichton. At the center of Ancestor is a fascinating scientific premise, the idea that a creature that is a distant ancestor to mankind and its genetic makeup can be recreated and cloned in order to provide organs for people who need organ donations. How the book actually plays out is as an almost note-for-note rewrite of Jurassic Park. And I believe of the three, I found this one to be the most disappointing as it felt the most padded. The monsters 
which are perhaps the thing that Sigler is most skilled at creating with his extensive knowledge of biology, or at least his ability to fake it, do not appear until the book's very last act. And even then, there's still sort of a sideshow. The main conflict being between the not very interesting hero of the story and the slightly but not very more interesting villains. In fact, the most interesting character in the book, a scientist with schizophrenia, while not particularly realistic in its portrayal of schizophrenia, at least approaches the semblance of a well-rounded character. This particular character, the one who I was most interested in, ends up being disposed of in a not particularly remarkable way about two-thirds into the book, and then there was nobody else left who was near as compelling. Nonetheless, I don't believe I would buy a Sigler book, but if I was to be loaned another one, as I have these three, I would probably end up reading it, being entertained in parts, rolling my eyes at parts, and wondering if there is any possibility that I might like this one better than the last, even as the rapidly unfolding events continued to kind of pull me through the novel despite my own misgivings. A hint as to whether Sigler may be more self-aware than I am giving him credit for involves the same character and ancestor who is writing the cheesy vampire novel. Even though we have been shown that what he's producing involves some pretty awful prose, later in the book, other characters read the story and find that despite their own objections, they can't help but admit they'd like it anyway and want to read more. And maybe that is a big part of Sigler's appeal. And folks, that's what I have to say for this one. As for novelists that I'm a little more sure about, I am eyeballing Joe Hill's Nosferatu as topic fodder for next time. The month I have coming up is pretty insane with preparations to be made for the launch of a new magazine. Hopefully I can squeeze it in. And if I can't, I hope you forgive me. Until next time, stay scared. Thank you for that, Mike. And good luck on all your many projects, by the way. Ah, yes. Next week, I wanted to mention, we will have the second exploration with Sylvia Schultz in her Lights Out Ghost Hunting segment. She has some truly spooky stuff coming, and I cannot wait for you to... Well, you'll hear all about it then. Our second piece of fiction of the evening. Oh, by the way, would you like some personal time right now? A moment to stretch, to refill the beverage horn, the bowls of goodies need rescooping, perhaps. Do you need a moment of micturation? Hmm? Well, take those moments. While I suggest you go to the Tales to Terrify iTunes site and talk us up. Say nice things about us, you know. 
that you go to our Facebook page and like us, or that you become a sponsor of the show by clicking on the Support the Show button on the website. I know, I know, I've already mentioned that, but I'm vamping. No, not that. Not that kind of vamping. I mean, I am playing a few vocal grace notes here to allow a respite. And you could also buy the book, by the way. Do that, and there might be a Tales to Terrify Volume 2. Oh, by the way, I want to send my best wishes to Stoker nominee Weston Oaks. Wes, at the personal invitation of the president, is once again on a six-month non-holiday to sunny Afghanistan. You can follow his adventures in words and pictures at his blog, http colon slash slash weston dash oaks o-c-h-s-e dot blogspot dot com there you all back well you missed an incredible minute and a half or so ask your friends on the way home that's by the way weston dash o-c-h-s-e dot com to find out about weston on a stick you'll see now, our second tale of the evening is Look Away, and it's by an old, old friend of Tales to Terrify, a voice we know and have loved for some time, and whose name I frequently misspell on the tale's homepage, Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N, Thomas Howell. Here is Mr. Howell's Look Away. Neck deep in the grave, Sam Watkins paused at the clatter of an approaching supply wagon. Covered with sweat and caked with red Tennessee soil, he had dug without a break for most of the late August morning. He leaned the spade in a corner of the rectangular hole and scratched his dark beard, listening to the sounds of the world above. He wanted a chew from his knapsack, but decided he couldn't afford the moisture it took to spit. The sprawling oak in whose shade Sam worked grew on a small hummock, the only tree in the middle of a wide field. Over the edge of the grave, Sam could see a whitewashed farmhouse gleaming in the sun a quarter mile away from beside a field of tall corn. If civilians were about, they had wisely made themselves and their livestock scarce. The sergeant, leaning against the oak's massive trunk, drained his canteen as a two-horse supply rig appeared around the bend. A good musket shot up the tree-lined road to Shelbyville, no single horses, so no officers. Sam left his straw hat and gray coat hanging from the low branch overhead. He wiped sweat from his brow with the sleeve of his filthy gingham shirt, nodded toward the sergeant, and looked up the road. Silhouetted against the plume of brown dust trailing their wagon, two straight-spined men bounced toward the lone oak on the hill. A third man rode in the back, bobbing and swaying on the rough road. That would be the dead man. Sam hadn't met Private Elias Wright, though everybody in the brigade knew who he was. Wright rode facing forward, a big fellow seated on a pine coffin. He looked over the scene like a general come to review the troops. Mad hole ain't fixing to dig itself, said the sergeant in charge of the detail. He cocked his head at Sam. Didn't you bring you no water? Done run out. Sam puffed out a breath and picked up the spade. It's all right. 
I'm about done. There'll be some on that wagon. The sergeant looked toward the two men planting a twelve-foot wooden post in the ground twenty yards downhill and hollered for them to get the lead out of their britches. Sam reminded himself to be grateful he got to work in the shade, surrounded by cool dirt. He bent again to the task, swearing softly at a root as big around as his wrist running lengthwise across the bottom of the grave. He'd dug too many graves over the past year, seen too many men shot. We do just fine at thinning our own ranks, without Yankee help. The gentle face of a court-martialed private in Virginia intruded on his mind. The boy had been caught dead asleep at his post on a cold winter morning. He'd been tall for his age, and his sky-blue eyes wide as dinner plates before the blindfold went on. Sam's calloused hands tightened on the spade. He squared his feet, bared his teeth, and attacked the unyielding root. Digging was digging, be it earthworks or graves. It's when the digging stops that hell breaks loose. He liked the chuff of the spade biting into the soft, aromatic soil. Stab, lift, toss. The sergeant said digging graves made for good bayonet training, that a man used the same muscles. Sam didn't know if that were true because his muscles felt like lead all the time. The loamy earth smell conjured the old Watkins home place in Maury County, with its fields of corn and cotton and sweet Jenny nearby when the work was done each day. She'd let him steal a kiss sometimes. His lips tingled at the memory. He remembered the warmth of her hands and a strand of copper hair catching the sunlight across her cheek. But when he tried to recall her face, he saw the pale blue eyes of the dead Virginia boy staring into oblivion. The boy had jerked violently at the noise and impact, and when the blindfold fell off, his eyes had been gaping into death's maw. Sam had to fit that boy's ruined body into a pine box six inches too short. He dropped a spade and massaged his temples with the gritty heels of his hands until his breathing slowed and his heart quit pounding against his sternum. Because I'm standing in a grave that I can't remember Jenny's face. Just as well. This ain't no place for her. Sam had managed to keep off shooting details by volunteering to dig graves. Battles were enough of a horror. He couldn't bring himself to shoot another countryman bound to a wooden post. But as long as men tried to run home from the war, there would be graves to dig. He waved at the dust as the wagon rolled past and spied a water barrel and a tin cup hanging behind the bench, clanking in time to the bumps in the road. The driver pulled the horses to a stop in the shade near where the sergeant stood. Sam's tongue was sticking to the roof of his mouth, and the damned hole was deep enough. He climbed out, squinting at a pair of fine-looking draft animals. Only the USA brand at the shoulder marred their appearance. He saw horse flesh at a distance these days, always under the well-fed asses of officers. The smell of animal sweat reminded him again of home. Like so many others, his enlistment had expired months ago. He should be home now, courting his girl and preparing to bring in the harvest. The men in the front of the wagon were fellow privates, though no one would mistake them for infantrymen. Their coats were new and clean, shoes shined under a coating of dust. Each sported a gray capy like the one Sam had lost back at Shiloh. A young man held the reins. The other, a crusty graybeard, gripped a musket, bayonet fixed. In the back, seated on his own coffin, Elias Wright doffed his slouch hat and stared at the tree line. Calm as you please. The prisoner wore no shackles. Sam craned his neck at that and saw no restraints of any kind. Who's in the box? he deadpanned. 
The coffin was makeshift, an old cannon box. The driver motioned for Wright to stand, then climbed in the back and pushed the box off the wagon by himself. The thin planks rattled when it hit the ground. Well, all would surely be revealed in due time. Sam put his arm over the sideboards and knocked on the water barrel. Happy to see y'all carried up some who's in charge here, boy. The oldster with the musket glared down at him. Sam's face went dark. He moved toward the armed man, thinking to snatch him off the wagon and drop him in the fresh grave. But the look of sudden apprehension in the guard's eyes satisfied him. Yellow dog. Ain't never seen a fight. Wouldn't know a Yankee if one spit on his shiny shoes. Sam took three slow steps toward the horses. Look, how fat and slick and shiny. There's no time for idle talk, sir, said the driver, stamping a heel on the floorboards. We are here to deliver this prisoner. The gangly young man had soft cheeks and dark fuzz over his lip. Sir? Sam raised his eyebrows and swiveled his head in search of phantom officers. I don't smell no cigar smoke. The boy snorted and turned away. The driver had neglected to engage the brake and lost his smirk along with his balance when Sam tapped the horse's rump and the rig shifted forward. The two seated men swayed like sailors and the driver stumbled over the knee-high water barrel, catching himself just in time to resume his place behind the reins. Sam stuffed his hands into his pockets and raised an eyebrow at right. Down the gentle green slope several yards away, one of the soldiers on shooting post detail whistled repeatedly, as though calling a dog, the standard greeting for staff officers, couriers, and other non-combatants. Wright barked a staccato laugh from his perch on the pine box, then looked into the open grave and forgot to close his mouth. "'Take him down by the post, you coffee coolers,' the sergeant barked. "'He ain't shot yet.' The shooting post, now securely planted in the ground, consisted of a four-by-four-inch piece of new pine lumber with a black iron ring driven into it at shoulder level. Sam gestured toward the cup. "'Say, how about let me—' "'Yeah!' the driver shouted, snapping the reins, and the Union horses pulled away. Wright put his hat back on and watched Sam from under its brim as the wagon rolled forward. The common infantryman's enthusiasm for the cause had mostly run out along with his original enlistment contract. Since the reorganizing back at Corinth, Mississippi, and the harsh discipline that followed, soldiers were sick of war in the Southern Confederacy. After shooting men by the score for desertion, no wonder the Army needed reorganizing. A breath of wind ruffled Sam's collar, and he inhaled the fresh scent of distant rain. The close terrain hid all but the most immediate weather from a man in this rolling country, with its tall hickories and pines. The trees rustled and sighed now, in anticipation of a summer storm. Like so many others, Sam had enlisted for twelve months, and had done his duty faithfully. But once the Confederate Congress had passed the Conscript Act, a soldier became nothing more than a slave— forced to march, dig, load, shoot, fight, march, etc., with death or dismemberment, the only hope of release. Sam looked skyward at the prospect of a cool shower, but saw only the dark silhouettes of turkey vultures turning and turning in a widening gyre against the blue sky. He gathered his weapon and gear and followed the wagon. The law that dealt the most damage to morale passed on the heels of the Conscript Act, said that any man who owned twenty negroes could go home. The saying, rich man's war, poor man's fight, echoed around every campfire, 
All the original 1st Tennessee Regiment officers from Maury County had resigned because they could. For the conscript soldier, the glory of the South, the cause, and the pride of the volunteers had lost all their charm. Yesterday, Private Elias Wright, nephew of the brigade commander, General Marcus J. Wright, had taken it upon himself to make a point, or so the story was told. Purportedly, he emerged from his dog tent first thing in the morning, announcing to all within earshot that his enlistment was up, and he intended to start his journey home that very day to Purdy, Tennessee. Everyone in camp laughed and went about fixing his bacon and johnny cake. The wagon driver had set up the water barrel on the back of the wagon, and the sergeant waited his turn while the shooting post men drank. Sam tossed the spade into the wagon beside where Private Wright remained seated and got in line. The condemned man hid beneath his hat, picking at his fingers. Sam had heard that Wright was a connected man who could have had a lieutenant's commission, but enlisted instead to rise up the ranks on his own merit. Fair-haired, handsome, and educated, Wright had to be a fool, but it made for good telling around the campfire. The story was, Wright had started walking after breakfast yesterday while the rest of the outfit pulled up stakes and prepared to march. Nobody but the general's nephew could have made it out of camp. A couple of picket sentries arrested Wright and returned him to brigade headquarters before the breakfast grease had set in the skillets. This was all a byplay, of course. There would be a pardon. The execution would be faked. Their four-man detail sworn to secrecy. Wright wore no shackles, no home guard hovering about or overseeing the detail. A man could afford to act the fool with a silver spoon sticking out of his mouth like that. Maybe the general would send Elias Wright down to old Mexico to wait out the war. The way things were going for the southern states, he wouldn't be down there long enough to learn the lingo. The strengthening breeze carried fine droplets of rain that cooled the soldiers' skin. It was starting to look like they might see some real rain. Sam scanned the sky and listened for thunder. He was suddenly conscious of being the tallest man, toting a steel-barreled musket in an open field. Sam stepped up to take his turn at the water barrel. The guard's musket sat propped against the wagon bench, and the graybeard hopped down to take up the cup himself. The guard drew water, and Sam prepared to break his teeth with the cup if he brought it to his lips, but the oldster offered it to Sam. Bygones, the guard said. After a second, Sam nodded, drained the cup, and passed it to the sergeant. Sam said a quiet prayer of thanks for the water, the breeze, and the overcast sky. "'Y'all give me your canteens and I'll fill them up for you,' said the guard, fiddling with the barrel's brass spigot. His woolen uniform was dark with sweat. "'That oldster is too long in the tooth to be up front exchanging lead with Billy Yank anyhow. Must be the heat making me so ill-tempered.' Sam opened his knapsack to bring out an oilcloth parcel, which he opened on the wagon bed. One of the kindest men he had ever met had given him a five-pound plug of fine Virginia tobacco during the Army of Tennessee's recent campaign in that state. Sam had about half of it remaining. A rich, sweet aroma rose from the parcel, and heads turned his direction. He cut off seven portions and passed out six. It was several hours before supper back at camp, and there was nothing he knew better for staving off fierce hunger than a good Virginia chew. The supply men thanked him politely, and Wright nodded and accepted the plug with fingertips that looked like the paws of some wild animal, nails bitten to the quick. The sergeant had the men wrap and stow their cartridge cases in their knapsacks in case the sky opened up on them. 
He constantly preached the separation of powder and water as a matter of survival. The supply men hung their gear from metal hooks set under the wagon bottom. Sam had never seen anyone do that and admitted to himself it was a pretty good idea. After securing for weather, there was nothing to do but wait for orders. Since it was nearing noon, each man produced whatever food he had on hand, and the trading commenced. Everyone offered Sam something in trade for more tobacco, and he silently thanked his Virginian friend again. Tobacco was better than money these days, and Sam came into a handful of dried blackberries and five hardtack squares of indeterminate age. The Yankees called the palm-sized flower tiles tooth dullers and sheet iron, but unlike cornbread, the stuff kept forever. He heard tell of it stopping many balls. The driver provided Wright a chunk of cornbread, wrapped in an old page from the Southern Illustrated News. Wright, huddled in the middle of the wagon bed, nibbled at the bread and drank a little water. All but Sam had sought a rare moment of solitude. Wright stared unblinking as Sam used the butt of his bowie knife to break a piece of hardtack, then set his battered tin cup on the edge of the wagon dropped the desiccated shards of bread inside with the blackberries and covered the contents with canteen water. Say, right? Sam leaned on the wagon and watched his meal drink up the water in the cup. Did you really walk out of the bivouac in broad daylight? Right, raised his chin and brushed crumbs from the reddish whiskers there. Yes, I did. Sam Watkins. Sam offered his right hand. Elias Wright. Elias had a good handshake. Sam generally made it a point not to get acquainted with dead men, but a question burned in him. way I hear it, you did it to make a point, protest-like, because you're the only conscript can get away with it. Was that what people say? Elias's laugh sounded like the bark of a small dog. That would be a coup, wouldn't it? Sam scooped some bread and berries out of the cup with the broad blade of his knife and put the still crunchy stuff in his mouth. The berries made it taste less like wet sawdust. You want to know what it was? Elias grabbed the sides of the wagon and looked at the gathering clouds. I was fed up. Hellfire, man. We're all plumb fed up with... Fed up with marching and starving and filth and lice and diarrhea, existing like an animal. It is no way for civilized men to live. Wright shifted to his knees and spoke in a low voice. I considered taking my own life, but I reckon I have too much fear of God after all. Sam stood up straight and stopped chewing. Why are you still sitting in that wagon? He lowered his voice and motioned with the bowie toward the tree line. Any fool can see your uncle aims to give you time to get gone. Elias smiled. And go where? Be who? Besides, what if old Uncle Marcus intends to pardon me? He can't very well do that if I'm a fugitive. They're going to kill you if you stay. Elias slowly folded his arms and held a shrug. I know it. Sam wiggled the point of his knife at the forest shadows across the field. You could head west where there ain't nobody but Spaniards and Indians. He scowled at his own foolishness for having divulged his own childhood dream. They kept silent company for several minutes, watching the vultures settle in the tall hickories at the edge of the empty field. I felt like an imposter in uniform from the start, Elias said at last. Can you imagine what it's like pretending morning to night? He took a deep breath and let it out slowly. No more, Sam. I'm done play-acting. Well, I'd sure run. Ain't you never run from nothing before? Elias looked up at the sound of a crow calling from the oak on the hill.
Gray clouds came over the treetops. The sky flashed and rain fell so heavily. The air was solid white all around, like glass in motion. Dust became mud and ran down the wagon ruts and twin streams. Sam stood in the deluge, pelted from above like an object of general derision, but grateful for the day's heat being drawn from his body. It went on for nearly an hour, and the men watched water sluice off one another until it quit. Sam wished for a piece of soap. A lone horseman approached along the Shelbyville Road as the rain slacked. He was a courier, armed with a pistol at his side and a saber on his saddle. The man's hat sagged with rainwater, lying against his head like dog ears. He rode a high-stepping Morgan breed whose iron-shod hooves sprayed mud in all directions. The rider spotted the sergeant's three yellow chevrons and went to him, producing a limp document from a leather case, dark with moisture. The sergeant read and acknowledged with a nod. The courier wheeled and sped back up the road, spattering the infantrymen with fresh mud. Elias sat in the wagon with the dripping brim of his hat pulled down over his eyes, picking at his fingers. His head rose at the sound of the sergeant's voice. The brigade is fixing to form up here. Let's get this site squared away. The sergeant produced a new hemp rope from his knapsack and threaded it through the iron ring in the shooting post, while the other men cleaned up the remains of their meals. Sam went up the rise and looked into the open grave. It hadn't caved in, but held rainwater a foot deep. Fat earthworms wriggled half exposed among the jagged stumps of protruding roots, and several floated at the bottom. A big palomino splashed up the road at a leisurely walk. A trim officer rode easy in the saddle, and his long white beard stood out against his dark gray coat. That would be the chaplain. From a distance, his mount looked remarkably like Jenny's palomino mare, a broad-backed Texas quarter horse named Annie. Jenny would ride bareback and barefoot down the road past the Watkins place and wave at Sam, who would always stop his work in the field to watch her go by. I think her daddy was catching on. Sam hadn't seen her for three years. He bowed his head and closed his eyes. Oh, Lord, let me remember her face. I just need that to hold on to. Though he made it a point not to keep count, Sam was certain that he had seen over twenty executions. Each began with the arrival of a chaplain. That preacher would be here in a few minutes, and once the officer put his boot on the ground, there would be no looking the other way while Elias took to his heels. Sam hurried down to the wagon, took a deep breath, and placed his hands on the side like a neighbor at a fence. For God's sakes, man. Sam said, inclining his head toward the chaplain's unhurried advance. Why not get while the getting is good? This hardly seems the right time to be running from a man of God. Wright stretched his mouth into something like a smile, but he was as pale as a peeled potato. Look here, dying? That's as easy as pie. Finding something to live for, now that takes some doing. You got to give yourself a chance. Anything's better and getting put under the clay. Elias swallowed hard. I'm not going to run away again. Listen, I'll distract that old guard. His musket load is bound to be wet anyway. Elias gave him a sardonic twist of the lips and climbed out of the wagon without another word. He folded his hands and waited for the chaplain. Sam backed away a respectful distance and tore off another chew from his knapsack. The sergeant stalked up to him wearing the disappointed father look that so annoyed Sam, 
since they were the same age. Private Watkins. Yes, Sergeant. Now, you know better than to fraternize with a prisoner. Yes, Sergeant. Recollect to me why that is, if you please. Because it might. Sam took a deep breath. Because it has a detrimental effect on order, discipline, and the performance of our duties. Exactly right. I done look the other way this time. Don't make me regret it. Yes, Sergeant. Now tear me off another chew. The chaplain had tied his horse to the wagon and spoke in low tones to Elias, who held his hat in front of him and studied the ground. Though Sam couldn't understand his words, the aristocratic rhythm of the old man's speech carried across the short distance. A metallic glint drew Sam's attention a second before the sounds of a thousand marching troops reached his ears. Wright's brigade had just appeared at the bend in the road. Elias lifted his head at the rumble of footfalls, clanking metal, shouted commands, and the deadly glitter of bayonets. Elias stood with clenched fists and trembling knees. But he stood. Somewhere in that flowing gray mass, slogging up the road alongside Elias's friends, marched the firing squad that would kill him today unless the fool took off for the woods in the next couple of minutes. Elias! Sam shouted, hands cupped around his mouth. Elias looked his way and he shouted again, jerking his head toward the woods. Get, brother! Why don't you run? The sergeant's face fell and he said loud enough only for Sam's ears. Mind your tongue, lest you want to be next against the goddamn post. The chaplain stood stock still, immaculate in his gray uniform. Either he was deaf as a cannonball, or he chose to pretend he hadn't heard the gravedigger shouting. The gold braid on his hat gleamed like the streets of glory as he bowed his head to pray with the prisoner. The brigade produced a sobering clamor as it closed on the execution site, like some monstrous predatory machine. There was none of the singing or gallows humor banter apparent in the formation that went on during routine movements. They marched silent and grim as if to battle. Post a tail! Secure the prisoner! The sergeant called. They bound Elias's hands in front of him with the rope in the iron ring, and he rested his forehead against the post. Harsh voices carried over the clanging din of the brigade's three battalions as they maneuvered into a three-sided square around the post and made a quagmire of the soggy field. Sam moved behind the troops to stand with the sergeant and the supply men. Well, there ain't nothing for it then, Sam said. God's unfathomable will exasperated him. How can a man like Elias end up like this, raised with all life's advantages only to meet his end with nothing and nobody to care about, nothing to tie him to this world? Elias seemed to have gone limp, like a rabbit resigned to its fate in the jaws of a fox. Am I any different? Am I fooling myself into carrying on each day? The horror of a moment when he, Sam Watkins, might cease to struggle covered him with prickly chills. The chaplain knelt, despite his age and fine uniform, on one knee in a patch of wet grass facing Elias, and lifted a voice that might have belonged to a great stage actor. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who of his great mercy hath promised forgiveness. Sam ceased to listen. He was a man of faith, though not a religious one. That's it, chaplain. Talk of forgiveness, and then see a good man shot dead. The South is going to run out of good men at this rate. 
and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The old man stood and led the brigade in a ghastly hymn. Their tuneless chanting sounded like a dirge from the underworld, interspersed with brutal encouragement from the flat of their leader's sword blades. The sun reappeared during the song, and its heat reasserted itself on the damp formation. As the men sang, the sergeant major appeared at the shooting post, shouting at the post detail men. The two privates in question leapt forward, untied Elias, and turned him around with his back to the post, and his arms secured behind him so he couldn't quite stand up straight. Elias faced the brigade and watched the forced singing with very wide eyes. The hymn faded and perished, allowing Sam to hear General Wright and his staff splashing up the road. The sergeant major's voice boomed over the field. Brigade! The hubbub of so many in close quarters ceased. Attention! A single, great stomp of boots, shoes, and bare feet reverberated through the ground. The sun seared the back of Sam's neck. Sweat rolled down his face into his beard, dripped from his nose. The downpour had been welcome, but they would spend the rest of the afternoon steaming. General Wright dismounted and entered what had become a human amphitheater, with the post, the knoll, and the oak at its center. Alone, the general approached his nephew. This is where the old man pardons the boy, Sergeant mumbled, perhaps to himself, perhaps not. See if I ain't right. Elias hunched over, and his lean shoulders jutted from the unnatural angle of his pinioned arms. The chaplain saluted and went to collect his horse. General Wright stopped an arm's length from Elias and removed his pale leather gauntlets. He spoke quietly and privately to the condemned man while the brigade sweltered at attention. It appeared that General Wright would have Elias die with more dignity than the usual humiliating spectacle afforded. There would be no milling about, no men perched in trees for a better view. Sam realized there was no honorable way for General Wright to pardon his nephew. Had the general been surprised to learn that Elias hadn't run? As the heat resumed, wisps of steam ascended from a thousand stinking rain-soaked soldiers. The brigade created its own weather, a swirling humidity evaporating into the sky. No trace of cloud remained in the blue dome overhead. The general placed his right hand on Elias's shoulder. Elias nodded once, lips drawn up tight. At this, the general turned on his heel and spoke. Men, it is the solemn duty of those burdened with the mantle of command to enforce discipline in the ranks. Private Elias Wright, who I count among my own kin, has been convicted of desertion in the presence of the enemy. He paused, perhaps distracted by the cawing of a gaggle of crows in the oak behind him. And will be shot to death by musketry. Scanning the troops, he pulled his heavy gloves back on and shouted over the heckling birds. He assures me he has made peace with our Lord and stands prepared to meet his maker. God forbid any should choose to abandon his country and duty, but let the sentence carried out here today serve as a warning to those who may harbor similar thoughts. Sergeant Major, proceed. The commander rode back toward Shelbyville with his staff, no doubt to enjoy a somber supper that Sam was certain would include roasted meat. Once General Wright was gone, it all proceeded quickly. 
The sergeant called up the shooting detail, and a young corporal marched eight precise men up from behind the center battalion. Elias gawked at the soldiers as they lined up before him. Sam didn't recognize any of them. No blindfold appeared. Perhaps that had been part of Elias's final conversation with his uncle. Ready, said the detail sergeant, not loud but clear against the babble of the crows. Oh, Elias said. His shoulders jerked once, spasmodically. A tremor coursed through him and pressed his feet and knees tightly together. Aim! Oh, oh God! Fire! Eight musket balls split the afternoon. Fifteen, maybe twenty fat crows erupted from the tree in a confusion of black wings, and the wet smack of many balls striking vital flesh followed in the wake of the weapon's roar. The shooting detail vanished in a cloud of black powder smoke that hung in the still air. Elias's knees buckled, and he collapsed like a sack of corn before the echoes had faded. There was never any dignity in death. The body's long legs bent at awkward angles, and the chest seemed to have burst open. Sam always watched for some sign of a soul, but he had never seen one leave a man's body. Jenny, Sam breathed. He squeezed his eyes shut and saw her freckled smile and round hazel eyes, plain as day. Thank you for the use of that, Steve. Look Away to My Way of Thinking is a wonderfully written story. You know, since the earliest evenings here at Tales to Terrify, I've said that we've been lucky to have so many people willing to read to us here in the Nook who also write. For who better to embody words than an assembler of words in fictive passions? I have said that of Stephen Thomas Howe, that he's one of those people who in addition to reading for us and others, is also a writer. Two weeks ago, in this year's first Stoker show, Stephen read Bruce Boston's Surrounded by the Mutant Rainforest. Ah, but now, well, apparently now I must shift perspective and say that in addition to his writing, Stephen Thomas Howe also reads from time to time. Mr. Howe, is a career military man who, after 23 years in uniform, is now back in civvies. He lives in South Carolina with his wife and two sons and has just been accepted into the University of Tampa's MFA creative writing program. So he and his family will soon move to Florida this summer, I believe, so that he may study fiction writing and look for a job, as he says, that doesn't require body armor. Though sometimes <laughs> writing requires... Well, he'll find out. By the way, you may purchase tonight's tale, Look Away, at Amazon Kindle for just 99 cents. Go to Amazon, put in Stephen, with a V, Thomas Howell, H-O-W-E-L-L, -L, and there you will be. 
Well, after all that, no, that was not our author reading his own work tonight. Jonathan Dans stood in for Stephen this evening. Last week, you heard Jonathan read Weston Oaks' Righteous. Tonight, well, tonight, there was something different. Jonathan has been here for shows number 12, 62, and, as mentioned last week, this makes number four. One more, and you get the key to the five-time reader's washroom. Jonathan, like Steve, is a sometimes narrator, but what he really is, is a writer. He lives in West Virginia, on the edge of the New River Gorge, with his wife, daughter, and what he calls a menagerie of domestic pets. Jonathan writes speculative fiction that he would like to read. Swords, magic, and monsters are cool, he says, but people are interesting. Writing, reading aloud, holding down a full-time job, hanging out with the family and riding his bike in the woods, makes living on the edge of that gorge sound like a wonderfully fulfilling place. So, if the mood strikes you, Visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee. That's at jonathandansoneword.com. That's with a D-A-N-Z dot com. Well, children of the night, that will be that for this week. I would have you be upstanding, bright and chipper. Uh, stack your cups and bowls in the sink, please. Mahler, the ink-black cat of the nook, and his lovely companion, Miss Tabitha, will clean and ready them for next week's gathering. When you will return, ready for utterly different, yet wonderfully, deeply disturbing tales, well calculated to keep you in... Well, you know what you come here for, don't you? Yes, for the tales, the treats, the drink the snuggles and the shivers, not to mention the walk home that provides those moments alone in the footfall dark as you pass through moonlight and breathe lake air, during which you may dwell on the evening's terrification. And so dwelling, you arrive home, you climb your stairs, you pet your cat, you feed your fish, you drink some warm milk and hurry to your bed, wherein the evening's thoughts and dwells lead inevitably to pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been... Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening.